Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders, and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Today's guest is very exciting in the work that he's doing. I've been in touch with him over the past year, I think it is. His name is David Leventhal, and he does the program Dance for PD. Hello, David. Hi, Margot. Great to be with you. It's great to be with you. And isn't it wonderful? You're in Brooklyn, I'm in Florida, and here we are together. I love it. It sounds like you're you're sitting right next to me. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about how you first got into dance, and then we'll talk about the program for PD. Sure. I started dancing when I was eight years old. I fell in love with it pretty much right away. And I was introduced to dance through a boys class at Boston Ballet School. I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, at that age was was very physical, uh, as a lot of kids are. And I, I think my parents were happy that I found an outlet for that. They didn't know that it would grow into this passion uh, and just become part of my life and part of my identity the way that it has. But uh, but I've been dancing now, I guess, almost, almost 40 years. Um, when I uh, was in high school, I moved a little bit away from the more serious focus on dance and did some other, other things. And then in college, I refocused myself on, on, uh, on modern dance because I'd really only done ballet until then. And I fell in love with modern. And that's when I started thinking about dance as a possible career and uh, committed myself when I moved to New York to give myself three years to try to make it, whatever that meant, I guess, you know, not to have to do other jobs to support dance. And, um, and that's, that's what I set my, my sights on. So that's, uh, that's how I started to work with a number of companies here in New York when I first moved. And within the first year, I auditioned for Mark Morris's company, which I had loved for many years because they were one of the few groups that came through the Boston area. I was familiar with the work. Uh, I knew some of the company members. And when I auditioned for them, it kind of felt like coming home. And uh, I was I was hired for one project. And that sort of grew into a, a full-time job. That's really great. And when you say modern, just for some of our listeners that may not be as familiar with dance, who are some of the models of, of modern that you really enjoyed and got you kind of obsessed with it, if that's a good word? Sure. Great question. So a lot of people say, well, what is modern dance? Uh, modern dance really stems from uh, the, the movement away from classical ballet and the development of a more organic form. So people like Isadora Duncan, Ruth St. Dennis, uh, and then leading to Martha Graham, Merce Cunningham, Paul Taylor, uh, Alvin Ailey. Uh, so, and, and in Europe, Pina Bausch, people like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a big constellation that holds many different voices and many different styles, but essentially it's, it's a more, um, or it's a, it, it's an expressive form of dance based ways on ballet, but a merge, a melding of different styles, including styles from, um, from African dance, from 
jazz, from traditional folk forms into uh, an organic style. And in general, although not exclusively, modern dancers uh, are working without shoes. So there's there's a, the barefoot element, although that's not always true anymore. Um, now, most ballet companies uh, integrate modern choreographers into their repertoire. Uh, when I was getting to know modern for the first time, I loved Graham technique. Um, I love the work of Paul Taylor. I love Cunningham technique. So those are three things that I, and they're quite different. And I also loved Horton, which is one of the underpinnings of um, of the Ailey training and Ailey company. So a lot of different styles that I, that I gravitated towards. And um, in the end, I think Mark Morris draws from everyone who's come before and, and puts on a good a, uh, sort of an addition or additional recognition of traditional folkloric dance uh, because that's his background and, um, and ballet as well. So it's a, it's definitely a melting pot. Oh, it's tremendous. And you've made a brilliant career out of it. I salute you. I, I did some dance early on in my life and uh, I, I remember with joy the dance classes that I attended to. So, and being in New York, there's such a plethora of things going on as well in terms of performance and seeing other great shows. But we're going to be talking about Parkinson's today as well. And I guess it was, was it 2001 when the Dance for PD program started? That's right. We started in 2001 and it, it really coincided with the opening of the Mark Morris Dance Center. So up until that time, Mark Morris Dance Group was, was an itinerant company um, in that we rented studio space wherever we could and then performed on the road. But there wasn't a kind of home base except for a small three-room office in lower Manhattan. So having spent three years as the official company in residence at the Belgian Opera House in Brussels, from 1988 to 1991, the company's director, Nancy Umanoff, and uh, artistic director, Mark Morris, really had a vision for creating a bricks and mortar home for the company in New York. And it took exactly 10 years for them to uh, fulfill that vision. But when they did, they opened a 30,000 square foot uh, purpose-built dance center in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And in addition to this being a space for the Mark Morris Dance Group, the professional company, we wanted it to be a school for local community students uh, and a resource for the community, a place where everybody could come and dance, a place where people could take class, rehearse, um, meet, and, and connect in a, in a place where dance and, and live music were deeply valued. So that was really the, the origins of the center. And then as soon as we put that out there, we were eager to see who from the community would, would come back and, and be interested in partnering with us. One of the first people who came through our doors was a woman named Oli Westheimer. And Oli ran a support group, the Brooklyn Parkinson Group, which was specific, specifically for people with Parkinson's um, and their partners. And through leading that group, Oli heard people talk about their desire that the support group go beyond the traditional confines of talking about a disease and really become more of a social group and an activity group. And Oli was thinking a lot about what that could look like. And she had a dance background. So in all of her thinking, she was filtering what she was hearing through the mind of a, of a dancer. 
And the more she thought about it, the more she realized that dance itself could be incredibly beneficial for people with Parkinson's, not just because uh, of the, the motor skills and the aspects of the physical that were embedded within dance training, but the social elements, the emotional elements, the fact that when we dance, we dance together as a group, we express ourselves, we tell stories through our bodies. And she realized all of this would be very useful for people who often feel quite limited in how they're able to express themselves. And her hunch became a reality. I mean, and I say hunch because Margot at the time, there was really no focus on the value of dance and Parkinson's. In fact, uh, for many people, it was difficult to think about exercise in Parkinson's. Uh, quite quite recently at that point, um, uh, exercise was, was counterindicated for people with Parkinson's. What that means is that if you were diagnosed with Parkinson's, a neurologist would specifically warn you about the dangers of, of intense physical activity because they worried about falls and they worried about the dangers of that. Now, we've come a long way, partly because of, of a lot of research that's been done on the value of exercise and dance for people with Parkinson's. But we started the program in a place where we just weren't sure whether anybody would be open to that idea. And as it turns out, um, it's, it's really filled a niche for people around the world who are looking for a way to be engaged physically, but also creatively in their, uh, in their management of Parkinson's. You know, I teach improvisational theater and we do movement and we've used some of your um, uh, classes that I have on the DVD and uh, it's really true. So some of the thoughts that I've, I've heard you express in other interviews is that um, you get out of the medical model. You're not focused on, you don't talk about Parkinson's. It's not a focus in terms of the group, um, but your quality of life program for people with Parkinson's. That's right. I think it's really important that, you know, dance is an art form, first and foremost. So when we welcome people into the studio, we're welcoming them in as students, as dancers, as dance students, rather than as patients. And as soon as they walk into the dance center, they know they are in a place that's about art. It's about creativity. It's not about, it's not about Parkinson's. Um, we hear some people in our class say, when I'm in this class, I don't have Parkinson's. I don't feel like I have Parkinson's because my focus is elsewhere and I'm moving in a way that doesn't reflect the limitations that I have with Parkinson's outside of the studio. And so everything about the program is wrapped up in this idea that people coming in are dancers. We're there to work with them as dancers. That's not to say that we don't know a lot about Parkinson's. We've done a lot of training. We've done a lot of learning and, um, and knowledge collection around, around Parkinson's. So, so the, the class is, is crafted specifically for people uh, with Parkinsonian challenges. But that said, the focus is always on learning dance as an art form, engaging with each other as people, not as patients, and with expressing ourselves as artists. And, and I think that that is that is key uh, because it does two things. One, it allows people to escape from Parkinson's. They don't have to think about it when they're in their class. They just focus on being a dancer. And number two, it allows them to think about the movement skills that they have, not as a not as a therapy or as solving a problem, but as an exploration of possibilities, right? An exploration of what's available to them. And, and I think that's really um, that's really important. 
that idea of exploration of possibilities, I that's another commonality we have with our groups that do improv theater. Um, and the idea that of possibility thinking is just a wonderful thought. Now, David, um, there's also a really, it's a very mindful activity because when we're dancing, we're in our body. I mean, we're thinking about our movement, but it, I think it's kind of a mindful activity. What do you think? Yes, I would say dance is first and foremost a mental activity. A lot of what we're doing in the class starts with cognitive skills or cognitive awareness, right? One of the things I always talk about is this this uh, combination of imagery, um, phrasing, so a sequence of movement and music. And we have to think consciously about fusing those elements to create dance movement. It sounds compl complicated, but actually we do this all the time. If you put it on music, automatically, without being in a dance class, we tend to tap along to the music. And maybe the music already, already reminds us of something that, um, that we, we like or we love, right? Oh, that music makes me think about, or I, I remember listening to this music when I was at a party or when I got married or whatever it is. So we already do that. The dance class or the dance program is really a chance for people to do it more consciously and for us to bring in many disparate elements to create a cohesive experience. So for example, we might say at the beginning, let's think about, uh, let's think about the four seasons. Let's think about the, the wind of springtime and how does that wind ripple through your body and how do we create a movement pattern then that might represent the wind blowing a tree and that tree then turns into, um, you know, a blossoming of flowers. And so we start to have a story and then we find music that supports all that movement. So it's a very cohesive, integrated experience that is always connecting mind and body, but it always starts in the brain. It always starts in the imagination. And I think that's really important for our, our dancers with Parkinson's because often they have challenges doing the mechanics of the movement, but their imaginations are very much alive. So yeah. if, you're, if you're initiating movement from the imagination, you're already a couple steps forward of where you might be if somebody is just uh, barking out, you know, right, left, right, left at you. So it's, it's, a, it's really a very strong system of cues that um, that helps people move in ways that they otherwise have have difficulty moving. Well, I'm really hoping that our listeners will go to your site and see some of the videos that you have of your dancers and the testimonials that are so brilliant. And um, I love the idea of, of socialization because that's so important, especially now more than ever. And I know you have classes on Zoom, which is fantastic because the limitations we're all facing especially for people with Parkinson's who may or may not have a care partner they're living with um, and the challenges they're facing. So yeah. to go into uh, on, uh, being, being an artist, to be an artist, to be creative, to uh, make something beautiful, I, is, I can't say enough about it. And uh, the building of confidence, I think, is mm -hmm. so important. Yes. Well, even, you know, even on Zoom, I think we're able to create we're able to create this sense of, of togetherness, of belonging. Um, we will often, and you may do this in your, your theater improv classes too, we go into gallery view so you can see other people and people can dance with each other. They can see each other. They really do feel that there's a sense of connection, even if we're not actual, actually touching. Uh, remember, when we talk about inclusive opportunities, we're talking about the sense that people 
feel that they belong to something. And I think when you when you're engaged in the arts, it's a fast tracking to belonging to something, to belonging to a community that is creating something meaningful together, uh, creating a dance together, creating a, a theatrical experience, singing together. We know from from arts engagement opportunities across the spectrum that arts play a huge role in giving people a sense of community and a sense of belonging. And anyone who's engaged in the arts knows that even in the first few minutes, even if you've never been there before, you you create bonds to people and with people that that are may otherwise be difficult to to create uh, through that activity of dancing together. And I would argue that's probably something that goes way back in our evolutionary history, as we were creating rhythm and music and dance. Um, probably before we were actually using, you know, the full vocabulary, verbal vocabulary that we have now. Um, so it's a big part of our human history, this idea of, of dancing and, and creating music together. And right now it's actually serving as an incredibly supportive uh, tool as people are more isolated than, than ever before. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking about all the people that were dancing in the streets recently from uh, New York to L.A. around the country. Dance is such a uniting uh, force for people. And um, let's talk a little bit about the music, because uh, I'm, I haven't been to your Zoom classes yet, but I do plan on it. Just renewed my membership and uh, I want to go to the Zoom classes. But on the DVD uh, that I've ha uh, had, and I urge people to get the DVD. It's wonderful. Um, and you've got four DVDs now, I think. We, don't you? we have four. Yeah. Yes. Um, but the music is so enchanting and all the different styles of music. Can you speak mm. about the music a little more? Sure. The music is is a fundamental part of what we do for, for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, uh, music is incredibly important to Mark Morris as a choreographer. Um, he's been called you know, the Mozart of modern dance uh, in his uh, in his musicality and his his uh, belief that that his work, his choreography stems really from the music. And if you've ever seen his work, you know how closely it is aligned with the music. So that's sort of the, the artistic inspiration. But we also know from, from research out there that music has a way of unifying different parts of the brain to work together in ways that ordinarily they might not. So it, it's, it's unifying, it connects different parts of the brain um, in the service of many things. One of those is movement. Um, we find in our classes that um, music is a very strong cueing system. So for people who have difficulty initiating movement or maintaining a steady gait, steady walking pace, the music provides what one of our participants calls a red carpet. It's like this red carpet rolls out in front of you and you know what to do. And so for people who may not always have what's called a movement plan, right? It's difficult for them to initiate movement and then to figure out what to do. And for people who may have lost an internal rhythm, which is something that happens in Parkinson's because the part of the brain that is, um, that is affected or one of the parts that's affected, the basal ganglia, is responsible for motor control, but is also connected to, to rhythmic um, control. So we, we hypothesize that, um, that people with Parkinson's may benefit from the strong impulse of uh, external impulse of a beat. 
and and music to get them moving. And in fact, we see that every day in our classes. We see this sense of, um, you know, music is the driver. It is the thing that initiates and helps people sustain movement, uh, which are skills that are otherwise that can otherwise be quite difficult for people with Parkinson's. The other part of this, of course, is the emotional piece. So I often think of Parkinson's as an anti-theatrical condition in that it robs people of three key theatrical abilities. Number one is the ability to utilize one's face to express emotion. Some people with Parkinson's experience what's called facial masking. So always read what they're feeling through looking at their face. The second is that Parkinson's affects voice. It affects projection of voice. Uh, it affects enunciation. And third, it affects full body movement. So the amplitude of movement. So the way that some people speak with gesture and express themselves with gesture, that gesture can be rein, is, can be reined in, can be smaller, can be tighter um, in people Parkinson's. So Dance has a way of opening people up, giving them those expressive tools again. We do use voice in our class as well. And music is a big part of that because it encourages people to want to express something. If they love the music, if there's something in the music that inspires them, they'll use their bodies to project that joy or uh, exuberance or whatever it is that's coming from the music. And I'm not sure that that would happen in the same way in silence <laughs> or simply with like a metronome. So there's something in that music that wants, that makes people want to move bigger. It makes them want to move more expressively to communicate something. And that's a key aspect of what we do. Um, and how about the different kinds of music you, you use? I know you use classical music and you use other types of music as well. Yeah, it really runs the gamut. Classical, jazz, uh, folk music, uh, pop music. It's, it's all in there. I think um, a couple things are particularly helpful. One is a, a recognizable melody. So we, we bring in a lot of kind of Broadway show tunes for our group in New York and, um, and a steady rhythm and a recognizable structure. So a lot of popular music and a lot of classical music has a recognizable structure. There's part A, then there's part B, then it goes back to part A, then maybe there's a variation with part C, and then it goes back to part A. So these structures are really helpful uh, in choreographing movement and then in helping people remember the movements that they're doing because it's like, oh, A has come back. That means I must be doing this. And so it gives structure and, and reduces some of the stress around remembering movement or um, having to, to sequence that movement. I will also say, though, that music is very culturally specific. So it's important to note that you know, we use a certain mix of music in our New York classes. There's a completely different mix of music that is used in our affiliate classes in India, in China, in Australia, in Holland, in South Africa. So it really, where you are, depends on the kind of music, you know, will affect or impact the kind of music that you're using for class. And we encourage that. We are, 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 we really frown upon sort of like dogmatic insistence on certain kinds of music must be used in class. No, the kind of music that should be used in class is music that inspires those local participants to want to move. And very often that is music that is, um, that is related to their cultural background, to their language, to their, um, to their beliefs. So it's, it's really important to make sure the music reflects 
who is in the class and is not dictated from some kind of central office. And are you offering singing classes as well now? We do. When we started our classes in Brooklyn 19 years ago, um, we noticed that people really liked to sing along as they were dancing. And so that uh, turned into a separate program that we call Sing for PD, which at the time was led by the same pianist who played for the dance classes, a wonderful musician named William Wade. And William, as it turns out, was a, was a Broadway uh, composer and coach, vocal coach. So he had a lot of experience um, coaching singers. And so it made total sense for him to, uh, to, to start that program. And that program has really continued for the past probably 15 years um, as, a, as a parallel program to our dance program. And we are continuing Sing for PD online. So that's available every Friday on Zoom as well. Um, it's a little bit different because we don't hear everybody singing. Um, it's just everybody's muted, which I think for some people gives, gives them more freedom because they can sing however they wish. They still get the experience of singing. You know, they see other people singing and there's a, a professional musician who is working with them. And it's exactly the same philosophy as the dance class. We are committed to connecting professional artists, professional teaching artists with people living with Parkinson's so that there's an exchange and that there's, there's learning going on from artists. Um, and it's again, not, not about a, a therapy per se, although same thing, you're getting a lot of benefits for vocal projection, for enunciation through singing, even though the focus is on the artistry of, of being a vocal musician. Well, we'll have to put the link up for that class because I need to be in that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great class. I bet it is. Now, there's been some, have you had uh, part in some, you know, uh, research at all, uh, maybe peer-reviewed scientific research? Have you had any of that happening yet? Yes. Uh, there are now 40 peer-reviewed published studies on the impact of dance on people with Parkinson's. That, that is correct, 40. I know, I, when I first saw that, I, I couldn't believe it. There was a bibliography created by one of my colleagues, Rachel Barr in Toronto. And when she put that list together, I, I, had, to, I had to look at it about four times. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, there's been a lot of research out there. Uh, not all of it is specifically on the dance for PD model um, because some of that research is looking at Argentine tango, uh, contact improvisation, Irish set dancing, and other forms of dance. But a number of those studies are based on the dance for PD methodology, and um, and including four studies that we did in our on our home population. So we actually did those on on site or through a very close partnership with a research institution, and and then a number of studies that are based on our methodology. Um, and to which we're credited, but it's not a class that we necessarily oversaw. We probably trained the teacher to lead that study group, but we didn't, um, we didn't directly supervise the, the research. Uh, what's really interesting in the research is the broad spectrum of outcomes that we're seeing um, in terms of po positive outcomes. Uh, so although a lot of the research is preliminary in that it's not dealing with a large cohort, you know, for the gold standard of medical research is, is uh, not just randomized and controlled, but a larger cohort, like 600 people in the study. Uh, we're not there yet, but in the preliminary cohort sizes, we're seeing a lot of strong benefits throughout the, throughout the um, symptom spectrum. So the most obvious things are in the motor set. So things like walking speed, um, 
balance, coordination, um, fluidity, so lack of rigidity, uh, timed up and go, which is a test of how quickly someone can get up off a chair and walk. Those sort of uh, physical measures come across very clearly in the research, and they're, they're quite significant uh, improvements through the dance experience. But now we're starting to see, I would say, the second layer of non-motor benefits, things like uh, mood, self-esteem, self-efficacy, uh, socialization, um, lower, lower incidence of depression. Those things are equally important to people with Parkinson's, but they can be a little bit harder to measure. You know, we don't have a, a, a quantitative scale in the same way that you do for something like walking speed, but there are still good measures out there and they are being used to pick up what's happening in these interventions. So uh, we need more research. We need uh, we need bigger studies, so more cohort, cohort sizes. And we need to understand more about the mechanisms of what's happening to create these benefits. But right now, we're just pleased that there are, there, there are you know, dozens of studies that point to the benefits because it helps more people who might be hesitant about participating in dance actually step up and say, this is something that I want to do, but also this is something I need to do. And this is something that my doctor is telling me to do. And we're seeing more and more of that as well. Yeah, to have doctors suggesting it, it's like the boxing that has become very popular. A lot of people go, I'm not going to go to a boxing class. And now mm -hmm. we know it's a very popular method of exercise. But this is really a spiritual experience. The movement, the music, the connection with other people. I find it to be, you know, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about spiritual and mm -hmm. finding value and purpose. Um, a lot of things might happen, but I'm not going to miss my dance class. <laughs> That's exactly right. The spiritual, when we, when we think about, you know, spiritual inspire, respire, this idea of breath, of being filled with something um, that, that, that improves your life. That, that is really what the dance class is about. Everybody has a different uh, physical reaction, but I think everyone who comes to it has a, a spiritual reaction to it, which is connected to feeling better in their bodies, feeling a sense of clarity in their, in their, well, really a clarity between their mind and their body, which otherwise can be quite clouded. It can be quite a challenging relationship between mind and body in Parkinson's because your mind is often telling your body to do something and it's not responding. And yet in a dance class, we're seeing more of that uh, connection. So anytime you're connecting mind and body, you're bound to have a, what I would call a spiritual reaction, that there is an integration of your whole being in this, in this endeavor. And I think that's something that people discover in dance that, um, that, is, that is hard to replicate elsewhere. And uh, that, that sense of wholeness, of, of, of being you know, your, your whole self. And the other thing that we see from that is a great deal of confidence because often people with Parkinson's are told, you know, you, oh, you can't do this or you're going to have trouble doing this. And they do experience a number of challenges, things they used to be able to do that they can't do. For many people, though, coming into a dance class is a completely new experience. Many people have never even into a dance class before they never danced before and they're learning things and they're improving and they're getting the benefits of that. And suddenly they're developing confidence because they're, they're seeing changes in themselves. They're seeing things that they couldn't do four weeks ago that now they can do. 
And that's an incredibly positive message and a reinforcement of the fact that they are still, um, that there is still lots of possibility available to them. And that, that can help fight against some of the, that negative downward spiral that so, happen, uh, so often happens when you're living with a chronic condition. And, and those behavioral or psychological uh, characteristics are so, that's, as a psychotherapist, I'm really working on those as well. And mm-hmm. uh, there are some good measurements for anxiety and depression, and we can see improvement. Uh, but um, I, and I start all my classes with music, David. I start all my mm-hmm. classes with music, and I encourage yeah. everybody to either get up or stay in their chair. And the little memory I have of some movement, uh, we use that then. And uh, it, it puts everybody in a wonderful frame of mind. It just gets them the music and the movement together. Um, and uh, I, I just think this is such incredible work right now uh, and so important. Now, you're all over the world. And how many people are trained in this method right now that you put through your training program? Well, we have, we have more than 2,000 who have trained. A number of those, however, are... are um, allied health professionals or physical therapists or occupational therapists who use elements of this work in their practice. So I would say of that more than 2000, I would say probably over a thousand are teaching artists. So people with dance backgrounds um, who are actually leading classes or in the process of starting, starting classes. Uh, And a lot of what we do is providing support and continuing education for those teachers, for those teaching artists so that they um, they're continually getting the best information they can, both in terms of Parkinson's, but also in terms of, you know, good practice uh, of, of teaching, particularly now teaching online, but all the time, sort of how do we keep these classes fresh? How do we keep people re-engaging with their own imaginations as teachers to engage their participants? Uh, and, and also how do we reach new participants? I think one of the things that we've worked really hard to do over the last few years is to um, create programming for for younger people with Parkinson's, people who are on what's called young onset Parkinson's, who are diagnosed before the age of 50, and making sure that what we're doing is is relevant and appealing to them too. And that means perhaps different music. It means perhaps an all-standing class, which is what our Dance for PD Pro class is and the fourth volume of our video series is, is an all standing experience that can also be done seated, of course. But um, for a lot of people, if you're 48 and you've just been diagnosed a couple of years ago, you, you want to push yourself as much as you can now, gain those motor skills that then can serve you through, uh, through the lifespan, through the course of living with Parkinson's. So we want to be listening to, to, to that community and making sure that um, we're creating materials for, for them as well. So that's, that's something that's, that's really important too. But uh, something yes. I think is important is the other Parkinsonism or like illnesses like PSP, yeah. MSA, CBD. I'm just using the initials here, but you know what I'm talking about. Or do you have some of those students as well in your classes? Absolutely. Our, our classes welcome anyone with a Parkinsonian, the Parkinsonian family of, of challenges. And, and that includes PSP, uh, MSA, and, and uh, Lily Body Dementia and other, other, other uh, branches of, of Parkinsonian conditions. And for sure, and, and some of our training 
uh, is related to talking about those other those other challenges, which are not as easily treated as as Parkinson's. Not that Parkinson's is easy to treat, but there are at least some very uh, clear pathways for clinical treatments for idiopathic Parkinson's, but not so much for for uh, the other Parkinsonian symptoms uh, uh, syndromes you mentioned. So um, yeah, it's something that that's that's really important. And we again, the, the class is beneficial for everyone, but particularly those with movement disorders. So anyone who has challenges who's coming, we have people with MS. I mean, we've had people who have had strokes uh, come in and participate. So although we're primarily focused on Parkinson's, we have had a number of people come in with other challenges that are related to, to movement. Uh, and of course, all of the non-motor elements too, like isolation and, um, and uh, mood, mood uh, depression. So that is so fantastic. Now, did you know much about Parkinson's before you got into this? Did you have a family? I, I knew very little about Parkinson's when I started teaching. And um, I think Oli, who, again, who came to us with this idea, I think yeah. she saw that as a benefit because I, she really didn't want it to be a clinical model. She didn't want it to be uh, a program right. where we as dancers felt like we had to solve a problem. She really wanted us to think of it as dancers first. And of course, she would then supplement our knowledge with things that she felt would be useful in making sure the class experience was accessible and safe. But first and foremost, she wanted us to lead and facilitate as artists. So over the course of this, over the course of the 20 years, I've, you know, been to innumerable conferences and symposia and, and I've really learned as much as I, as I can about Parkinson's. And I'm glad to share that with teachers. And I do use that sort of on the back burner when I'm thinking about material for the class. But first and foremost, it's always about the dance experience. It's always about the, the, the artistry of the participants in that, in that room. Now, it's one of the concepts, I don't know if I understood this correctly, that that really no mistakes or failures because people can do whatever they can do and they don't compare themselves to others. Is that true? That's absolutely true. There's, there's, there's no wrong way to dance. There's no wrong way to dance. We are there as teachers to facilitate the experience, to suggest pathways, right? There are often many options to do one single activity. Um, and we welcome the richness of, of that diversity, of that variety. As well, some people prefer to sit and simply watch or listen to what's happening. And that's fine too. There's a, no pressure to participate in any, at any one point. Um, we do find that sometimes when people are new to the program and we're in the studio, people come in and they'll, they'll kind of sit for a couple classes. It's like they're just taking time to absorb what's going on. And then like the third or fourth class, they start to move. And then once they do that, they move a little more and then they move more. So it's, it's, a, it's a process. But even in that first class, we value them and their contributions as participants. We see them as participating, even if they're they're not actively moving, because of course their brains are participating. Their brains are taking in all this information. Um, we they may in fact be be dancing kind of in their heads and um, and really thinking about what's going on, even if they're not initiating physical movement. So there are many ways to participate. See, this is another reason there are so many parallels. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about, because improvisational theater, one of the first things we learned is there's no mistakes. Whatever you do, it's okay. 
and that we're, we're, we're all successful. And that's a really, that's an empowering concept for a lot of people because they often see themselves as, you know, making mistakes and not doing things right. And they're going through all this loss and grief over who they were uh, before. So the benefits are so uh, multiple benefits. Now, have you had some performances with your group? Did I see something about that? Did you? We have. We've done three performance projects uh-huh. with our group, and that's that's been a, an incredibly transformative experience. You know, I talked earlier, Margot, about the power of thinking like a dancer and thinking as an artist. And I think the performance opportunity simply extends that to the next level, that people are thinking of themselves as performers. They have something to say and they have something to share uh, with their with the audience, which is in many ways their community, their families, their friends, people who are there to support them. And it's incredibly powerful for people with Parkinson's to get up on stage and to 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 perform as dancers. And we've done it, we've done it successfully, or they've done it. We've we've provided the means for them to do it, but they've done it for themselves. Um, all three projects did incorporate some element of Mark Mars repertory. So they were learning, you know, company repertory and then performing an adaptation of that repertory. We've also commissioned new work from choreographers to be set on the, uh, on the dance for PD group. And that's been incredibly successful. I mean, the, the creativity of the, of the choreographers and the participants in creating something together has been, has been profoundly inspiring. Um, and then this, you know, I talk a lot in class about the value and the importance of projecting your movements, of making them big, of imagining that you're performing to the very back of a theater, that, that back row of the balcony, so that your movements can be seen. And there's nothing that reinforces that more than actually being a performer and understanding that. And I think that serves all aspects of somebody's life. Uh, somebody's life. It gives them confidence. It gives them knowledge of how to project movement, how to make their gestures seen and visible, um, how to stand with a sense of presence and dignity. And, and all of that is, is really important when uh, Parkinson's itself is cutting into some of those uh, some of those feelings and some of those um, uh, pillars of of what it means to be who we are. It's so spectacular, and it's I guess it's fair to say that your life has been changed by Parkinson's. I would imagine, in a great way. <laughs> yes. and- you know, I I also love the idea that um, as I transitioned out of performing uh, around nine years ago, um, you know that made way for people who hadn't had the opportunity to perform and people living with Parkinson's to come onto the stage, right? To, so I'm kind of sharing my insights uh, from performing with them and giving them the encouragement and support so that they can have that experience. Uh, they know what it feels like to, to have the kind of confidence that you need to go into performance and the confidence that comes from having successfully performed. And I would say that all three performance projects were incredibly successful because the participants uh, learned so much and gained so much through the process. At the end of the day, it's always about the process with performance more than that, like that one show being the, the, you know, the, the pinnacle, although I think for them it was absolutely, but it's really about the process of working on these dances over the course of many months um, and really mastering them and really owning, uh, owning that movement that is particularly meaningful for them. 
So I did want to ask you, is, is Oli still around? Oli is around. She is. She has retired, so we don't see her that often, but um, she's still involved and is still, of course, a great ambassador for the program that uh, that was her vision and uh, is 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 a presence. But um, she is uh, she's not in class as often as as we would like her to be. We'd love to see her all the time, but uh, she's she's around and she's still very very supportive. Yeah, great. So people can support your uh, project. Uh, Dance for PD by being donors or becoming members. And um, we're going to have all those links available on the uh, podcast when we show it. So I just want to thank you so much, David Leventhal. You've made a difference to so many thousands of people. And it's a team effort. I understand that. So when I say you, I do mean you specifically because you put your heart, blood, cold sweat, everything else <laughs> into it, I know. But um, thank you so much for taking the time because I know you're busy and I'm so grateful to get to know you better today. So uh, do you have any other comments you'd like to make before we bring this to a close? Margo, it's just been such a pleasure getting a chance to share with you and thank you for the wonderful opportunity. Uh, we do encourage everyone to come dance with us. Uh, our classes right now are particularly accessible because uh, they're on they're on Zoom, and really anybody can come and, and log in and join up. and And I encourage you just to just to come and see what it's like. Um, we will be continuing that Zoom uh, program even when we return to the studio. So, because we've really built up a a global community of people who come dance with us each week, and we love that. We want to keep that going. So, I encourage you and and anyone in your audience to to come come join us and uh, be part of our community. I'm certainly planning on doing that. And thank you again, David. Cheers to you and your good work. Thanks, Margo. Take good care. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.